6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. The subtleties all through that little passage in Genesis 22. And obviously Abraham goes up there and and he's ready to do the deed. And by the way, you need to also understand, don't get misled by your little Sunday school coloring books. Isaac wasn't just a little kid. We even have some very elegant sculptures given to us as gifts, you know. It's always, he's always portrayed in art as a little child. No, he's probably close to 30, not over 30. And he went willingly. He volunteered. If you read the Hebrew, it says they both went together. No, the Hebrew says they both went in agreement. And um, Abram's all ready to do the deed. Has the blade ready to go. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the emotional churning in Abraham's gut and yet he knew that God was going to have ch- he's going to have children by Isaac because God told him that before Isaac was born back in Genesis 15 you got to read Genesis 15 to get the whole profile of this thing and he is ready to do it that's faith obedience in spite of the apparent consequences that's faith it's not <coughs> believing in spite of evidence that's a myth that doesn't grab it obviously you all know the story the angel interver- inter- intervenes they substitute a ram. And if not before, by then, Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. Because he names the place, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Verse 14. I don't know how much he knew, but he knew that he was acting out a foreshadowing of something in the future. And 2,000 years later, on that exact spot, another father offers his son as an offering for sin. And I think you all know a couple of chapters later, chapter 24, Abraham. And of course, Abraham, that's what's, it's also called a type. Abraham's the type or a foreshadowing of the father. Isaac as the son. They're acting out in, a, in a, what's called, the, in literary terms or coding terms, it's a macro code. It's, it's a type. It's interesting that two, a couple of chapters later, later, Abraham has his eldest servant commissioned to go to a far country and gather a bride for Isaac. Don't take Isaac. Don't want him out of the country. You go there, get the, bring the bride home. And so the eldest servant, don't think he's a menial, he's a business partner. He would have inherited everything Abraham had if he didn't have issue. He takes on the mission and he goes there and he qualifies Rebecca by a well and then arranges with her family to, it's up to her. She agrees to marry a bridegroom she has not seen. So they make arrangements and uh, uh, this eldest servant brings her back. Again, we have a type. Abraham's a type of the father. What is the eldest servant a type of? Holy Spirit. The eldest servant's name is not in that chapter 24. You have to go back to chapter, I think, 15 to discover his name is Eliezer, which means comforter. He's in the type of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, not only is he comforter, he's always portrayed in the scripture in a type as an unnamed servant. See the same thing in the book of Ruth. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Ruth is the Gentile, ultimately the Gentile bride of Boaz. Who introduces Ruth to Boaz? An unnamed servant. And why? Because in, in John 16, Jesus tells us that when the comfort comes, he will not testify of himself. 
and how literally that's true. Fascinating to see the artistry. But what's really interesting is when you get back to Genesis 22 and you read that chapter, I want you to pay attention to verse 19. Because after this whole event up there on the hill, verse 19 says, And Abraham came down, joined the two young men, and they went home. Three-day journey back to Beersheba. And they dwelt in Beersheba. If you look at that, you and I jump to the conclusion, I'm sure it's correct, that Abraham and Isaac came down the hill, they joined the two young guys that were waiting, and the four of them went home. But that's not what it says. It says Abraham came down, joined the two young men, and they went home to Beersheba, and they dwelt in Beersheba. Beersheba. What's interesting, if you study your scripture, the person of Isaac is edited out of the record from the time that he's offered until the time he's united with his bride by the well of Lahai Roy, the well of the living water. Two chapters, chapter 24, verse 62. I'm fascinated with that because the Holy Spirit engineers even the presentation in your Bible so that even, so it fits the type, the model. Obviously, Isaac went down, they all went home, but that's not what it says. And by the way it's expressed, it fits more tightly the model. Anyway, back to uh, James, verse 22. James continues, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith, his faith made perfect. See, Jesus taught that, that, uh, tree, he, he, that one recognizes trees by their fruit, and the same thing is with you and I. People recognize you and I, if we're saved, by the change in our life. How many people are shocked by the change that comes over some friend they've worked with for years that discovers the Lord Jesus Christ and their life changes. They no longer relish dirty stories. They no longer indulge in the things they used to. They, 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 their lives change. Their love has changed. Their passions have changed. Their commitments have changed. That's evidence of the work of God. James continues, verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. See, Abraham was declared righteous in, uh, by Paul in Romans 4, verse first five verses. You can look them up at your own leisure. Galatians 3, verses 6 and 7. And that was 14 years before circumcision was uh, uh, ordained. He was saved in Genesis 15. Circumcision came in Genesis 17. What a blow to the Jew. And that's hundreds of years before the law of Moses. Circumcision didn't save him. him. The law didn't save him. They had other purposes. His faith saved him. But then verse 24. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified. And not by faith alone. In other words, you know that he is... He is uh, saved by the fact that he, he, uh, his faithfulness, God's obedience. By faith, Abraham is justified before God and his righteousness is declared. By works, he was justified before men. And his righteousness demonstrated. Demonstrated. I love what D.L. Moody said. This sort of gets it across too. Every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. Isn't that neat? Put shoe leather to your faith. Titus, chapter 1, verse 16. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. And I, I always echo what Gandhi answered. When someone asked Mahatma Gandhi, what is the biggest obstacle to Christianity coming to India? 
And he answered with one word. Christians. What an indictment. Verse 25. Now Abraham, uh, now James is going to take another example, and he couldn't pick a more contrasting example to Abraham. He picks Rahab. Rahab, verse 25. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way. And this, of course, is drawing upon Joshua, chapter 2 and chapter 6. You may recall that uh, Joshua sent in two spies into Jericho. He had just led the children of Israel across the, uh, Jor- uh, the uh, Jordan River on dry land. First thing he did when he got to Gilgal, set up his base at Gilgal, the first thing he did was get them circumcised. Here's the entire Israeli nation wandering for 40 years but had not observed the rite of circumcision. Circumcised them. And now he's facing seven nations in the land. The biggest and most powerful of the seven was the Amorites, and their capital was Jericho. By the way, Jericho means the moon god. Kind of interesting if you put it today as the head of the PLO. I think that's very interesting, their base camp. But anyway, um, first thing he does, he sends in two spies. Why two? Forty years earlier, Moses sent in twelve, but ten were useless. <laughs> so I don't know if it, that's if you I'll just ten, I'll rather have ten, I'd rather have two good ones. <laughs> But I don't think there were spies. We always use that term spies, and I'll stick with it because that's what we're used to. But I don't think there were spies at all. Nothing they brought back you know, developed, uh, assisted the development of their, their battle plan. <laughs> What's the battle plan? Well, we're going to march around once a day for six days, keeping silent. Mm. And on the seventh day, we're going to march around seven times and blow our horns, and all the walls are going to come down. Really? <laughs> it's irresistible. I don't know how Bill Cosby can miss that. He did such a wonderful job with Noah. I don't know why you can miss Joshua's staff meeting, you know. But uh, as you know, the, the, the two guys get put up at this inn. The word in the Hebrew implies an innkeeper. But the Greek in the New Testament implies a house of ill repute. You know what a house of ill repute is. That's a whorehouse with a bad reputation. But uh, Okay. Uh, okay. James 2.25 and Hebrews 11.31 does indicate that she was an immoral person. And yet, she becomes saved. She becomes the, the, the wife of Obed, the mother of Boaz, who's so prominent in Ruth. And she is one of the few women that show up on a Jewish genealogy. In fact, the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 1. So he picks this case of Rahab, which is the opposite of his previous example. Abraham was a Jew, prominent patriarch, prominent in Old Testament literature to any Jew. Here's Rahab, who's a Gentile. She is an Amorite, and she's a prostitute. And she's also a comparatively minor figure in the Old Testament. So she's obviously quite different. You all know the story. She risked her life. Hiding them. You could say, gee, she betrayed her own people. She lied to protect them. A lot of interesting issues. The whole issue of Rahab. And I'll let you get into our Joshua commentary to get all the details. But the, you all know the story. How she by activate, And she makes the hall of faith. You know, we, we do need to... We need to uh, we're almost through. We'll make it. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews 11. You know, we all talk about Hebrews chapter 11. It's a famous... One of the most famous chapters in the Bible, let alone the book of Hebrews, it's often called the Hall of Faith. It's a summary of these great people of faith. 
I believe Hebrews was written by Paul for a lot of reasons I won't bore you with here tonight. It doesn't matter. There's a lot of good, competent controversy about that. But I have some strong reasons why I hold to that view. But the point is, so I mentioned that, so if I slip and say Paul wrote it, you need to understand that's controversial. I happen to believe it. But there are good scholars that would that like to debate that. I believe if James was commenting on this, he would not call Hebrews 11 a hall of faith. He would call it a hall of works. Let's take a look at it. It opens up with some great openings here. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are not seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Oh, really? How do we know about Abel's faith? By his works. That's interesting. By faith, Enoch translated that he should not see death and was not found. God translated him for, before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Uh, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. How do I know if you believe God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek God? By your reliance on those blessings, even though they may not be convenient. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen yet, moved with fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is by faith. What's Noah's testimony? That he made an ark. Is making the ark the important thing? No, it's a demonstration of his faith. For 120 years he had that thing in his driveway. Can you imagine how the neighbors thought? Anyway, you move on. Let's skip down and let's pick up verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. What's the demonstration of Moses' faith? Right up front. When he insisted, when he discovered, he discovered and then insisted on his Jewish roots. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. What was it? What was the thing that justified Moses? His faith? Yes. How? By his actions. Now pop down and get verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. The entire nation demonstrated its faith by crossing and so on. The whole, the whole chapter is called the Hall of Faith. But I'm almost tempted to relabel it in my Bible, the Hall of Works. Well, we've got one more verse to go in James. Verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What do you mean by dead? Meaningless, useless, powerless. A lifeless counterfeit. It's an imposter. If you have faith without works, there's something wrong. Now, we got, you and I, we've got a bigger problem. Because of Luke 12, 48. For unto whom, whomsoever much is given, much is required. You and I have the benefit of all the past history. You and I can look around and we can know a lot more. When Job was confronted with his problems, he didn't know there was a conversation between Satan and God. Job chapter 1, we learn all that. He didn't know that. Sitting on the dung heap, lost everything. See, we have the benefit of, the, of more information. We not only have the whole scriptures in front of us with great scholarship behind it, all kinds of helps at our fingertips, we have much more required of us. By the way, I got uh, some bad news for you. It's midterm exam time. 
2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in faith, and prove your own selves. Put that in your notes, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul is saying, hey, midterm exam time. And if you're smart, and you're facing a midterm exam, you give yourself one before you get to the big one, right? So let me ask you a few questions. And you have to answer openly, or obviously, but just consider this. Was there a specific time that you realized that you were a sinner and you admitted this to yourself and to God? And I assume that most of you would probably nod, but I'll leave that to you to think about. Was there a time that your heart was stirred to flee the wrath to come? Yeah, okay, good. Well, that's, you know, you may not be on first base here. Okay. Do you truly understand that Christ died for your sins and that you cannot save yourself? Have you sincerely repented? Ooh, that's an action item. That's not an attitude thing. It's something for, you know, more manifest. Sincerely repented of your sins and turned from them. If I'm, if I'm on a ship and uh, the task force, the flagship, gives me a turn 1-8, 180 degree turn, thinking about acknowledging it, flashing back, okay, right, that's great, and not turning. <laughs> no, no, I've got to turn. I've got to turn that helm. I've got to head the other way. Do you hate sin and fear God? It's easy to give intellectual assent to that. Think about it, whether you really do. And have you trusted Christ alone for your salvation? Not the church you've gone to, not the regular, your regularity of attendance somewhere or any of those kinds of things. Have you trusted Christ alone for your salvation? Do you enjoy a living relationship with him through the word of God and through the spirit of God? And if all those things are true, we come to the question, has there been a change in your life? Is there a measurable, demonstrable change in your life that the people around you perceive? Do you maintain good works, or are they just occasional and weak? Are you ready for his return? Often I'll be before an audience and say, suppose I could tell you, hypothetically, but suppose I could tell you with authority that Jesus was coming back tomorrow night at 2 a.m. How do you feel about that? Some people get uncomfortable about that thought. They know I'm just speaking rhetorically, but they, ooh, that bothers you, then you're not ready. If that doesn't quicken your heart, say, boy, the sooner the better. Something wrong. And the real question you need to think about as you drive home tonight is, will you be ashamed of? Uh, will you be ashamed when he returns? You know, it's interesting that Paul certainly understood that we are saved by faith alone. Or his epistles are full of that, and yet he also lived his life with a strange desperation. Pressing to the mark. Fearful that he might be a castaway. He, Paul? Ooh. I don't think any two Christians have the same uh, personal experience. And there are degrees of sanctification. But I do think we need to use the epistle of James and other scriptures to take a continual inventory of where we stand. Because the degree to which we our lives are demonstrating this is the degree to which our justification is confirmed. And I love what Psalm 139 says. David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. I don't want to close this without talking a little bit broadly. I've picked on you guys, you, I mean as individuals, 
if we understand James correctly in this, it raises some interesting doctrinal questions. I wonder if James endorses a common concept. Most of us endorse the, or accept the idea that there's a two-stage relationship with Jesus Christ. That the first stage is that he's our Savior, and the second stage that he's our Lord. I've many people say, you know, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you accept him, you've, he's your Savior. You've accepted him as Savior. But when you really submit to Jesus Christ, he's your Lord. I've heard people, you know, I probably, I may I'll go back in some of my tapes, I may have, you know, espoused the same view. But I wonder what James would say. I wonder if he would ask if faith without submission to Christ, yes, his lordship, is um, genuine at all. Faith without submission to Jesus Christ as a Lord, genuine at all. There's another issue that has to do with discipline. Discipling is, uh, would seem to be a ministry that's owned by all members of the body of Christ. And you and I are supposed to hold each other accountable for a life of faith. And this is not a call for actions that um, come easily necessarily, just, just actions that come easily in terms of our individual personality or temperaments, what have you. I think it's a call for actions that uh, are painful and sacrificial, like Abraham's. It wasn't convenient or part of his personality that God said, hey, I want you off of your son. Painful, inconvenient, at least. Sometimes the calls are risky, frightening, like Rahab's. Can you imagine? Sometimes they're just uncomfortable, inconvenient, like uh, being concerned for the poor or the needy that he used in the very first place. I think the other thing about, uh, in terms of uh, the church body, uh, a correct grasp of theology will not save. And neither will I, is a pattern of um, faithless humanitarianism. Boy, the papers are full of uh, heroic people doing, giving of themselves in marvelous ways, but not to the glory of Christ. From God's point of view, those are, uh, they're, they're empty. Not deeds instead of faith, but deeds in completion of faith is what, the, what James is calling for. Now, it's interesting, in terms of activities, I don't think James is calling us to do more. He's calling us to do things differently. And I think there's several different there are deeds of devotion, prayer, Bible study, worship, sacrifice. Abraham placed his son on the altar because he loved God more than his son. Oh, boy. And I wonder if that was part of the demonstration here. What is it that you love more than you love God? Whatever it is, you want to put that on the altar. It can be a hobby. It can be a career. It can be any of a lot of things. God doesn't want to be number one on a list of ten. He wants to be number one on a list of one, really. Deeds of devotion are done because God is worthy of them. Of course, there's deeds of morality. And this includes purifying our speech, thoughts, attitudes, behavior. It's interesting... (laughs) Rahab wasn't praying about the needs of homeless spies and decided to start a homeless ministry. (laughs) Right? She was confronted with a situation and responded as she was called to do. Now, all of us are deeds of ministry. All, All Christians are called into the ministry, every one of us, each according to our gifts, but all to obedience. So that's our finishing up of the... Jacob's letter to the 12 tribes, chapter 2. We'll take chapter 3 next week. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. It was Lord Kelvin that said, uh, 
We don't really know about something until we can measure it. How do you measure your spiritual maturity? Paul does call us to examine ourselves. And we need to measure it, not with numbers, but, but we need to measure it. And I think the way we need to measure it is how much do you hate sin? How, much, how completely are we really obedient to Christ's commands? That's the question I think we all need to do continually. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you, Father, for bringing us together. We thank you, Father, that you have given us this opportunity. We thank you, Father, for your word. And, Father, we come before your throne acknowledging our presumption, our arrogance, our ingratitude. You've done so much, Father, and we've taken it so for granted. We come before your throne, Father, acknowledging our sin. We come before your throne, Father, acknowledging our repentance. We do turn from these things that offend you, Father. Not to earn our salvation because we know we have it as a free gift from you through Jesus Christ. And yet, Father, we do seek to be obedient. So we would ask you, Father, through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would draw us ever more deeply into your word, ever more sensitive to your heart, Father. Help us to be more effective at declaring your nature before those around us through our actions, not through our efforts, but through your spirit, Father, that we might manifest a changed life that will bring the honor to you, Father, that will magnify your name, Father, that will communicate your heart and caring to others, that would manifest your redemption that you've gone to such extremes to provide for us and all those that would receive your Son, Jesus Christ. For we do, Father, this night, commit ourselves afresh into your hands, In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.